this morning. Also, that was written from Ephesus by Paul. And we will start our time in Acts 20 in Ephesus. And he will come back by Ephesus all this morning. All right? And some things that happened in that passage, he's writing to the church of Corinth, and he will actually go and visit the church of Corinth. We'll come back and buy Ephesus again here in our passage. So it's just in the province of God, that just happened to be so lucky that that was the passage we're reading today. Um, and if you know anything about that, um, it's, it's just what was on the, on the um, schedule in our reading. And if you know anything about the way that I preach, I just pick up where I left off last time. So this is where we're picking up last time, and God allowed us to read that passage this morning. So I'm thankful for that. Um, and we are going to continue our study in the book of Acts this morning, chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And the title of the message this morning is The Passionate and Persistent Pursuit of the Mission of God. The Passionate and Persistent Pursuit of the Mission of God. And as always, I just want to acknowledge um, our inability to understand, our inability to um, apply and comprehend the Word of God without Him doing a work in our hearts. So let's go to the Lord and ask him just to do just that. Lord, we ask you again to do what only you can do. Lord, this is, yes, you use our intellect. Uh, Lord, you use our background. You use our education in some ways. But Lord, all those things are in vain unless you open our heart to understand your word. And Lord, even though we may be encouraged and challenged and find things that are um, applicable to our life, which we will this morning, uh, we are at your mercy uh, for you to empower us to do those things. Lord, I pray we would be reminded this is not an intellectual a- exercise. But Lord, this is a time where you use your word to transform us and to conform us more and more in the image of your son. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, sometimes it's hard to keep going, isn't it? Just in life. Uh, many of us experience difficult things in our life that, in, that, that, that can't seem to slow us down or to weigh us down. Sometimes that's sin, and we can do something about that, that Paul tells us to, to lay off every encumbrance that ent- so easily entangles us. Sometimes it's just the, the difficulties of life. And James, in James chapter 1, says to consider all joy when you encounter various trials. And specifically there in chapter 1 of James, he's just talking about difficulties in life that you really have nothing to do with. They just happen to you. And and you have to deal with those things. And we all would agree that sometimes it's difficult to move on in the face of difficulty. Whether we brought it on ourselves or someone else or some other uh, circumstances brought that up on us. I want you to consider uh, the following information that was taken from John Wesley's uh, diary. I shared this many years ago and it's a great reminder uh, about difficulty. Here's from John Wesley's diary. Sunday, a.m., May 5th, preached in St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday, p.m., May 5th, same day, preached in St. John's. Deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday, a.m., May 12th, preached in St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday, a.m., May 19th, preached in St. Somebody Else's. Deacons called special meeting and said, I couldn't return. That same Sunday evening, preached on street, kicked off the street. Sunday AM May 26, preached in the meadow, chased out of the meadow as a bull was turned loose during the service. Hey, don't get any ideas. All right. Sunday AM June the 2nd, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday PM, June 2nd, afternoon, preached in a pasture. 10,000 people came out to hear me. John Wesley 
passionately and persistently pursued the mission of God, which was get the gospel out to as many people as he possibly could. And even though he had been kicked out and run out and, and heard stay out, he kept per- passionately and persistently pursuing the mission of God. Passionately, I say passionately because he understood what was at stake. He understood when Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it, the gospel, it's the power of God to salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. He understood what was at stake. So he passionately pursued that. He also persistently, because he knew that the word of God promised him there would be troubles in this life. And those who choose to live godly life, as Paul wrote to to Timothy in, in, in one of his epistles to Timothy, one of his letters to Timothy, those who choose to live godly lives will be persecuted. He knew that. So he passionately and he persistently pursued the mission of God. And we'll see Paul do the very same thing in our passage this morning. And here's a question for us as we think about John Wesley, and more importantly, if you think about Paul here in our passage this morning, will we passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God? Well, let's turn our attention here to Acts chapter 20. And as we study these verses, verses 1 through 17 this morning, we're going to be challenged by five exhortations to passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God. But before we look at our passage this morning, I want us to be reminded where we are in the book of Acts as we think about fulfilling the mission of God for the church here in Acts. Jesus charged his disciples before he ascended to the right hand of the Father in Acts chapter 1. Before he is ascending, he charged him, chapter 1, verse 8, with these words. And you may have memorized by now, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts or to the very ends of the earth. That's what Jesus had charged them. And here we see, in, 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 in our, in, in, as we walk through the book of Acts, we've seen it start in Jerusalem and go to Judea and to Samaria. Heaven forbid the Samarians. And even worse than that, to the ends of the earth, we see the Gentiles come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, not only for the Jews, but for the world. And here we are in um, Paul's journeys, in his third missionary journey, and, and Paul has been transformed by the grace of God in his life. He now has the, God the Holy Spirit living inside of him. And he's taken that message to everyone. And he's in Ephesus. We saw that our last time together. And this one who's been transformed is bringing the word of transformation to the people of Ephesus. And their lives are being transformed. If you remember last time we looked at that and just evidence of the transformation that took place in their, in their lives. And, and, and what happens is they begin to turn away from those things that they once pursued and they begin to pursue the things of God in their life. They begin to turn away from the things that are evil and of the evil one, and they begin to pursue with passion the person of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens is this kind of gets the businessmen a little riled up, and the religious leaders a little riled up because they're losing money and losing followers. And we saw Demetrius last time, he really gets upset. Hey, if they start turning and throwing away their idols, we're going to go out of business. We've got to do something about this. And he tells the religious leaders, he says, hey, our great goddess Diana or Artemis, if they quit worshiping her, you won't have a job. What are we going to do? Well, let's start a riot. And that's what happens in Acts all the time. Start a riot. And some people get caught up in the riot and have no idea what they're rioting about. 
And we, we saw that happen as this transformation begins to take place. And then God providentially, through, through the governor, through a government official, steps in and protects the people from the people, uh, not only Paul, but the rest of the people in Ephesus who have been transformed by the grace of God. And he uses Demetrius to say, hey, hey, calm down here. They haven't done anything that, that, that has been against the law. And Demetrius, as far as we know, doesn't know the Lord. Maybe later he did come to know the Lord, but he doesn't. And God uses him because God is in control and he's sovereign over all things, even government officials. You see that all the way through the scripture, one of the best examples is Pharaoh. Did Pharaoh love the Lord? No, but God used him for his purposes. And he got his people to Israel. So he uses providentially um, this government official and he, and he rescues them. Why? So they can continue to passionately pursue the mission of God. And this is exactly what Paul does in verse 1. Look there at verse 20. Look there at verse 1 again. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he, let, he left to go to Macedonia. Paul passionately and persistently pursued the mission of God here. Uh, the circumstances in Ephesus would have made most people flee and never come back. I mean, there's been a riot. And yes, God stepped in with, the, with this government official to kind of save their skin so they could continue on. But at the end of this, Paul could have just, okay, if I don't want to stir anything else up, and just in case they change their mind, I'll just move on. But he doesn't. Instead, the first thing he does is he calls the believers, the disciples there at Ephesus together, and, and, and he begins to encourage them. And, and so Paul doesn't let his circumstances dictate his decisions. Let me say that again. Paul does not let his circumstances dictate his decisions. Instead, he gathers the followers of Christ there um, and, and encourages them and exhorts them. We looked at that last week. Actually, the verse we finished with last week. So let me show you here what's going to happen. So now he, he leaves Ephesus and he goes to Macedonia. Let me bring this map up here. Okay, so here he is over here. I'll start over here. He's in Ephesus, and he's going to go to Macedonia. This is Macedonia over here. Okay, and the best way for him to get to Macedonia, the first time he went there on his second missionary journey, he went up to Troas and crossed over to Macedonia. You can see that on this side as well. So he's in Ephesus. He's encouraged them, and now he's going to go to Macedonia and visit the churches of northern and southern Macedonia, which kind of includes Greece as well here. So, uh, most likely he went through, uh, again, that Troas path, and the churches of Macedonia, as you can see on there, is like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Achaia, and, and Corinth. Uh, and now remember, if, we, if you know much about the book of Acts or have been with us, remember most of these places he wasn't uh, warmly received. And in fact, many places he was beat up, he was run out of town. Uh, they didn't like him just like the people in Ephesus didn't like him when he came in to preach the gospel. So it wasn't great fond memories always for Paul when he uh, thought about these places. But he, he still determined to go to these places. He didn't have to. He could have stopped right there and just turned around and went back to Jerusalem. Or went back to, 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 to Antioch in the northern part of Syria. But he doesn't. Instead, he passionately and persistently pursued the mission of God. Paul knew what was at stake. He knew that the, knew that the souls of men and women were at stake. And therefore, he kept focused on the goal, getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. Paul models here for us the first exhortation to those who passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God. The first exhortation is this. Passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God in spite of your circumstances. Passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God in spite of your circumstances. Let me ask this question. Do you allow your circumstances to dictate your decisions? 
Do your circumstances dictate the decisions that you make? Or do you trust the Word of God and based on, and based your decisions on the Word of God, on His truth? I had an interesting phone call, actually, from an employee here of one of our, our, our people, a young man who is seeking the things of God. He's been calling me, it seems like, once or twice a week here recently to ask me about things. He's studying the New Testament, how we got the New Testament, and I've given him some resources, and we've been talking back and forth. And, and he, he kind of felt it convicted a little bit this week, so he called me, and I was out of town, and he called, and, and, and he said, uh, Pastor Brian, I've got a question for you. I feel like that I'm walking by sight and not by faith. And I said, why is that? He said, well, I mean, I'm trying to understand how we got the New Testament. And with that, I feel like maybe I'm, I'm not walking by faith. I'm not trusting that this is God's Word, but I believe it's God's Word. I just want to understand a little bit more. And, and so maybe I'm walking by sight. And I said, no, 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 no. You're not walking by sight. Walking by sight is this. When you understand what the Word of God says, and you look at the circumstance, and you say the circumstance is greater than God's promise. That's walking by sight. We, we look out there and that's difficult. Or we're, we're called to do something and we look ahead and we look at maybe the cost, that it will, what it would cost us to, to go ahead and obey the Lord in that situation and we don't do it because it's going to be difficult. That's walking by sight, not by faith. By faith, we look at the circumstance, we look at God's word and say, you know, God's word says this. It doesn't matter what the circumstances say. It doesn't matter what the variables are here. God's word says this. I must obey God's word and go ahead no matter what the circumstances look like. And just try to encourage him. I appreciate his heart there. He wanted to walk by faith. Say, you're fine. It's okay. It's, because maybe those things you're studying will help someone else who's, who is doubting. It's, it's just fine to, to do those things. But th what happens here is Paul walks by faith. He doesn't walk by sight. And here we're challenged to trust the word of God. All followers of Jesus are called to passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God. And we must understand what's at stake just like Paul did. The souls of men and women are at stake. Because no one will be saved apart from the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is what God used to change their heart. And you think, you know, you know I believe in, in, in God's election. You know, I believe in that too. But nowhere in the Bible do you ever find that someone comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ without hearing the gospel. Never. If you find it, as I say before, if you find that in the scripture, you just show me the page and I'll eat it. Because it's not in there. And we, we get this thing, we get all caught up on election. And I believe the scripture teaches that. I don't understand all that. But we can also, we got to get caught up on the responsibility of man and the command to preach the gospel. And that no one will come to faith in Christ without hearing the gospel. So they, that we must understand what is at stake. We, we, we are not to, to sit back and say, oh, God will do it. No, he says he's going to do it through us. Well, maybe your circumstances are difficult. Maybe with people. Maybe with work. Maybe with your finances, maybe with health, maybe with persecution. The Lord exhorts all of us, even in the midst of those difficult circumstances, to passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God and take the gospel to the world. Well, let's look now at verse 2a, the last, the, 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 um, last part of that. It said, um, when he had gone through not the last part, the first part of verse 2, when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation. So we see in verse 2 that while he was visiting these churches in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, those type of churches, and ultimately down to the southern part of Macedonia, he gave them much exhortation, it says. When he left, if you look back in, in verse 1, it says that before he left Ephesus, what did he do? He exhorted them. And here as he's going to the churches in Macedonia, what does he do? He, he exhorts them. And this is synonymous with the teaching of the word of God. And you look through Acts, and you look at this word exhortation, how does Paul exhort people? He exhorts them 
through the Word of God. He, he calls them to understand and obey and apply God's Word. And as we saw a few weeks ago, the ministry of the Word of God was the central focus of Paul's ministry. For it's through the living and enduring Word of God that people are made right with God. That's called what we call justification, to be made right with God. And it's also through the living, enduring Word of God that, that, that his, his Word begins to change our attitudes and our actions, and we're made more like Jesus. And that's what we call progressive sanctification. The word sanctification is, comes from the word holy. We're being made more holy. So, so we understand, and he understood, that that's what happened. It was through the word of God. So here we see the second exhortation to those who passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God. Passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God by exhorting others with his word. His mission will be accomplished as we exhort others with his word. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago as well when we look at the ministry of word. There's two things that will last in this world, right? They'll last forever. Remember what those were? The word of God and what else? People. So we should spend our time investing God's word into people because they're the only two things that will last forever in this world. God's word and his people. And that's what Paul does. Even here, we see him do the very same thing that he's always done. His mission will be accomplished, God's mission, as we exhort others with his word. So the question that we need to ask, is this our focus? Is our focus to exhort people through the word of God? Is this the focus of our conversations with believers? Do we exhort them? Sometimes it's encouragement in that exhortation. Sometimes it's rebuke with that, in that exhortation. Do we also exhort people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ through his word? There's some things that we can use and we can talk about um, the, the miracle of God and, and looking at science and all these wonderful things that God does and, and, and break all these things down. We can talk about how the miracle, how we got the, the New Testament and the Old Testament. We can talk about all these things, but ultimately... They will not come to know the Lord Jesus Christ until we go to his word and say, this is what God's word says. And some people will say, well, that's kind of circular reason. You're telling them what God's word, they don't even believe God's word. You know what? I trust God with that. Don't you? Do we really believe that God's word is sufficient for salvation? I do. And, and, and it's okay to say, well, God says, God's word says this. That's the only way we know how to be made right with God. What else do we have to tell them? But what God's word has to say. So we need to exhort those who don't know Christ with the word of God. By his grace, let's passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God by exhorting others through his word. Now look at the, the, the second half there of um, verse 2, and we'll read down through verse 6. After he exhorted them, it says, He came to Greece, and there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail in Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and Aristarchus, and Succodus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. So after exhorting the churches of Macedonia with the word of God, Paul goes south to Greece. He spends three months there, all right, um, and most likely exhorting the believers and non-believers with the word of God because that's what he did. While Paul was in Corinth during those three months, this is when he most likely wrote the, the letter to the church of Rome. And he sent from 
Corinth here. He sent the letter of Rome to the Romans to Rome as he's in Corinth. Um, we don't know exactly who took that. There's speculation who took that letter, but we don't know for sure. But when it's time to leave and get to Jerusalem, which is Syria, all right, I can bring back up our map here. All right, when it's time to leave, all right, he's over here in Corinth. It's time to leave and go to Syria, which he was heading to Jerusalem. I'll t tell you that here in a second why. Um, it was discovered there's a plot on his life. He was going to get on a ship, and somehow someone let him know that there's something was going to happen on that ship that they're after him, as usual, right? He's been there three months, guarantee he's stirred up a few people, and they're upset with him again. Maybe they remember the last time he was there. And so he, really, he understands that if he gets on this ship, something, he's going to, he may die. They're going to try to kill him, so he doesn't get on the ship. Um, now, and then it, so he didn't decide to go back up through Macedonia. So you look here, he, he got back down here. So he's going to go back up this way instead of taking a ship straight over here. All right. I, geometry learned the shortest distance between two points is what? A straight line. Well, he didn't listen to his geometry teacher and say so he listened to God. And that doesn't mean don't do geometry, kids, okay? Um, but he went this way, back up through Macedonia. All right. Just where he just had been a few months before. Um, now notice that he has a whole group of men in our passage uh, um, with him. You see all these names that are not common names, and some of them are very difficult to um, pronounce. But here these, these guys are with him, traveling with him. So who are these guys that are with him? Well, one of the main purposes of Paul leaving Ephesus and coming back to the churches of Macedonia was to take up a collection to help the church in Jerusalem who were still dealing and reeling from a famine that had happened in Jerusalem. Uh, they, they, the church of Jerusalem was really hurting uh, financially. They, they, many people were starving. Many people were just uh, in, in a down and out way. So during his, his three-year stay in Ephesus, Paul wrote, say when he went to Ephesus, he was in Ephesus the first time, okay? Or he, he, wrote, he wrote 1 Corinthians where he exhorted the believers there to take up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. And he, and he tells him to set things aside until he comes. Now let me just read that. You can turn there with me if you'd like. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. Uh, and, and see what Paul says to the church at Corinth. Now he's writing again from Ephesus. It's going to help us understand who these men are with him. Verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed, by, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collection be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send with them the letters to carry, out your, carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it's fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. They will go with me. With me. So, you, you see here, he, he's writing to the church of Corinth. Why is it Ephesus? All right, and he sends it ahead. And now he's come to the church of Corinth, got run out of town again. He was there three months, and now he's heading back. All right, but, when he, but, but while he was there at church of Corinth, guess what he got? He got that gift they'd been saving up. All right, and, and guess who goes with him? Some people, just like he said would happen, that he said, you choose some people to go with me. And if I can go, I'll go with them. We'll take this, this letter of commendation and your collection to uh, the saints in Jerusalem. And then while he's visiting the church at Corinth in Macedonia, he writes, uh, uh, church, church, visiting the churches in Corinth, when he's coming back down to uh, um, uh, Corinth, all right, he's going through Macedonia this first time. He leaves Ephesus, goes to, uh, through Macedonia again. He writes his second letter um, that we have in 2 Corinthians to, to the church of Corinth. And in that letter, he also mentions the gift 
of the gift to the, the, to the church in Jerusalem. And he spends two chapters, verses 8 and 9, talking about this collection and how their heart should be right as they give. Well, in his letter to the Romans, which he writes from Corinth three months later, he also talks about the believers in Macedonia and Achaia who were generous to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So part of Paul's reasoning for coming back down through Macedonia is to take this collection. And as we saw from 1 Corinthians, he was going to take some others back with him, representing those churches to the church at Jerusalem. That's who these guys are that we can't pronounce their names, okay? Uh, just say it with confidence. Everybody thinks you know how it's pronounced, just like I didn't. <clears throat> but uh, th these men were, were, went ahead of Paul then, as we saw, and they go to Troas. So they're coming back around, all right? They've come back here. He's got all these guys with him, and they go ahead of Paul to Troas, all right? They've come up this way. He's got the gift. He's coming back down this way, and he's heading ultimately to Jerusalem. Paul understood that in order for people to be about passionately pursuing uh, the, the mission of God, they had to have their practical needs met. They needed food to have physical strength to get the gospel out. The church of Jerusalem was in, in need of practical help. He, he didn't, like James said, some people say, well, go be blessed and be warmed. God bless you. And they're starving. And they're freezing. It's like people who leave a track, and I've probably said this before, when you go out to a restaurant. Don't do that. They don't need a track. Give them a good tip. That's where they're working. And then share the gospel with them. It's a terrible witness. And we say, hey man, just go warm, be filled. God bless you. You need Jesus. And, and, and we don't meet their physical need. Now, I'm not saying the physical need is the most important thing. It's not. They need Jesus. But we can't ignore physical needs. And Paul didn't ignore the physical needs of the church of Jerusalem. They were, they were in trouble. And he asked people to give. So here we see the third exhortation to those who passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God. Passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God by meeting the needs of God's people. And this was evident in the beginnings of the church we saw early on in the chapters. As they, they gave as anyone might have need to those people in their body who needed help. They didn't ignore them and say, well, maybe, may God help you. No, they said, hey, let me help. And they sacrificed for the good of their brothers and sisters. And I, I, I'm proud to say that I've seen that happen over and 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 over. Am I getting my point? And over again here at Grace in the last 13 and a half years. It's a privilege. It's a joy to see that happen. When there's a need that has been known physically, our people have just jumped up and run to it. And so, well, you know, we need to take through the committee and we need to take it to the elders and then they're going to pray over it for eight months and then maybe we'll get some help there. No? And usually what happens is it gets met before it ever gets to us. Um, there's already people on top of it as soon as we see a need that needs to be met. What a blessing that is. And this is also why we support missionaries all around the world. We don't just say, hey, go get them, man. You're going to Uganda, sweet. Go get them. The Lord provide for your needs. Well, they, their needs to be met. And the way that God does it is through people like us. Is help support them. We give to them financially so they can take some practical things. So they can actually eat. So they can have the strength to take the gospel to the people who need it. Well, now let's look at verses 7 through 12. And this is one of the... Um, 
It's very informative. It's also one of the comical passages in Acts, as we've seen a few of those. Um, look at verse 7. We're going out through verse 12. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began, uh, Troas, just to remind us here, um, began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There, are many, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the window sill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep. Some of you know how he feels? All right. And he fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. This guy fell asleep during Paul's preaching. I don't feel so bad. I mean, if somebody falls asleep through Paul's preaching, I understand why they fall asleep when I preach too. All right, look at verse 10. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long, time, long, long while until daybreak, and they left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. Based on these verses, I thought about calling this message this morning, God's judgments against those who fall asleep during the preaching of the word. <laughs> that would have got your attention, right? Well, there's, there's a lot in these verses. I mean, we, I could have spent a series. I know you all aren't surprised. I could probably have a series out of what's contained just in these verses 7 through 12. But we're, for the sake of time and, and continuing on in, in Acts, uh, we won't do that. There's a lot here. Paul and his companions had been there for seven days, it says. And, and, and now this is his last day. It's Sunday, the first day of the week. And they're gathered together for corporate worship. Paul was planning on leaving the next day, all right? So this is his last time with them at this, during this visit. And it may be, he doesn't know, this may be his last time ever with these believers at Troas, who he loved greatly, who had visited three different times. He loved them. And he was going to spend as much time as he could on the last day. So they, they gathered in the evening, most likely so those that worked could attend as well. All right, so they gathered in the evening. Um, and Luke gives great detail. Notice the detail that he gives about this instance about Eutychus. Uh, he, Paul preached to midnight. Now, a lot of people say, man, that was a long sermon. We don't know exactly when they got together. Obviously, it was a little long because Eutychus was getting tired. All right, But we don't know if they started at 6 or 8 or 9 or 10. We don't know that. We know it was the evening. Um, he did preach till midnight. That doesn't mean that I'm going to say, oh, God's word says we should preach till midnight. Let's start at 8 in the morning. All right. Um, and also, listen, it, had, listen it, says it has many lamps. Now, that's a detail you, you need to get. Lamps have what on the end of them? Not, not electrical lamps. They have what? Fire. What do you have to have to keep fire going? Oxygen. And oil. You have to have oxygen, right? So when, when, when those lamps are going, it says many. What are they doing with the oxygen in the room? They're sharing it now. Not only with the people, but they're sharing it with, they're sharing with all the people and the rest of the lamps. All right, so there's other oxygen that's being taken away. Eutychus was young. He's probably past his bedtime. Eutychus was overcome by sleep. These are details. Paul says, kept preaching. And when you fall asleep, that's what I do too. All right, just keep preaching. All right, Eutychus fell out of the third story window. Third story. He's wanting us to get a picture here. He, he was dead. Now, remember, Luke's occupation was what? He was a doctor. Luke checked him out. He checked his pulse. He checked for signs of life. Luke pronounced him dead. The doctor said he's dead. He, he, Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, it says that he, he says, do not be troubled, for his life is in him. 
He says this afterward. I mean, he knew that, and this is exactly what Elijah, Elijah and Elisha did in the Old Testament. They fell upon somebody who was dead. And then God, in, in, in his sovereignty, and, and for some reason, used that to bring life back to their bodies. So Eutychus is raised from the dead. And they, then what happened? They continued breaking the, the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper. And they celebrated Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which guarantees our resurrection. There's some irony in that. Here, this young man had been raised from the dead. And they go on, they celebrate the resurrection that counts, that gives us all hope of resurrection from the dead one day. Paul stayed up all night with them talking. And I was from, from some of our college students are saying, that's a great verse. Stay up all night talking, all right? Um, and again, I think it's because it was the last time he was going to be with them. This is, this is it. So he's spending as much time with these people he loves. Again, and there's a lot here. And I want us to, to focus on the big picture here. Uh, we learned that the early church gathered to worship on the first day of the week. Sunday. And the first day of the week has always been Sunday the Lord's Day. And I also want you to know, some people say, well, you know that it could have been the Sabbath because, you know, the, the Jewish calendar, they counted a day from sun, you know, from some sunset, right, to sun, sun, sunrise or sunset to sunset, right? That's how the Jewish calendar. Well, notice they're not in a Jewish place, all right? They're in a Gentile world and there was Roman time. And Roman time is what we use. This was Sunday, the first day of the week, the same way we count days of the week. This was Sunday, not Saturday. Um, so what took place when the church at Troas gathered together? First notice there was a preaching of the word. This was foundational. They're meeting together. They worshiped through the word of God. Paul was preaching the word of God. And then notice also there's the breaking of the bread. They remembered the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and they worshiped him through the taking of the Lord's Supper together. The breaking of the bread. And then with this meeting, there was also taking of the common meal, which they called the agape feast, often in the New Testament. This was, but this was talking about, necessary, most specifically, he's alluding to the Lord's Supper. So they worshiped not only through the preaching of the word, but they also worshiped through the Lord's Supper. And no doubt, there were prayers that were involved in this worship together. And no doubt, there was most likely singing, because this is what they did when they got together. And they, they sang. They sang from their hearts because they were being filled with the Spirit, as it says in, in, uh, in Ephesians. And they were making melody to the Lord with their hearts. And no doubt those things took place as well. Paul and the church at Troas, as well as other followers of Jesus Christ, were committed to worshiping together on the Lord's day. And you're thinking, didn't Jared just talk about this last week? Yes, and so does the Word of God this morning. They were committed to that. So here we see the fourth exhortation to those who passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God. Passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God by being committed to corporate worship on the Lord's day. This is the pattern of the church. This is what we see when we look through the book of Acts. This is what we see when Paul writes the letters to the churches. This is the pattern that was set before us. This is part of the history of the church. And let me just add, you can't do communion or the Lord's Supper by yourself. You never see that happen in the New Testament. It's something we do together as a body. Well, you know, I can just do this at home. I, you know, I, can, just, I, can, I can worship at home by myself. You can't do this by yourself. You don't see an evidence in the New Testament ever when somebody does this by themselves. 
It's always together because one of the things we do is not always celebrate all right, the body of Christ. And since his body was given for us, we also celebrate what? The body of Christ. And from the passage Nathan just read, that, that phrase, body of Christ, I think has two meanings. You, 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 you look, you don't, when you don't examine the body of Christ rightly, all right, you bring judgment upon yourself. I do think it's talking about Jesus giving his life for us, but I also think if you go back and look at context, they weren't loving each other. And he's saying, when you don't judge and examine the body of Christ rightly, you also bring judgment on yourself. You can't do it by yourself. You also, the preaching of the word in, in a corporate setting, you've got to have others. I mean, most people, I mean, there's more than one person here. And my guess is if one person was here, they would probably leave. All right. The reason you all stay is because so many people are here. I appreciate that. All right. But you see this, you don't, you can study the word of God by yourself and you should. But the, the pattern in the New Testament is people come together and they hear the preaching of the word. And when Paul wrote in, this, in his second letter to Timothy, his last letter, in the last chapter, he says, to preach the word. And he wasn't talking about to no one. He was talking about the saints at Ephesus to preach the word. You don't do those things by yourself. We come together corporately to do these things together. Are we committed to this? Are we committed to passionately, persistently pursuing the mission of God by being committed to corporate worship on the Lord's day? That's what we're called to. And it's one of the ways that God grows us and prepares us further to passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God by being committed to these things. Look at verses 13 through 17 now. But we, going ahead on the ship, now Luke's with him as well, set sail for Assis, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he arranged it, intending himself to go, to go by land. And when he met us at Assis, we took him on board and came uh, to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chaos, Chaos, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the, and the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And then verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So we see here our map again. All right, so he's now come down. He's left Troas, and he's making his way down the coast. All right, it says he, he comes to all these places here. All right, and he goes past Ephesus to Miletus, which is a little south there of Ephesus, as you all see. He starts here, comes down, makes his way down, and he ends up in Miletus. All right, he and Luke and these other people who are with him taking the gift back to Jerusalem. And he calls, it says, the elders of the church of Ephesus, where he had spent three years. He, he loved these men. He had spent a lot of time investing into them. And he calls them to himself. Now, we're going to see next week what he said to them in the rest of chapter 20. But we'll leave that for next week. But the th key thing I want us to see here is that Paul was focused on the part that he played in the mission of God. He, he never lost this focus. He understood what was at stake and was determined by the grace of God to complete what the Lord had called him to. Are you? Are you focused? And we see here the fifth exhortation. Passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God by being focused on the part you play in the mission of God. You see, we we're all called to the same mission. Yet he has given us each different part to play on the team. And we need all the parts working together. There's one part of this when we think about being focused. I think about since I ran track. And I know you guys are going to have a hard time believing this. I was a sprinter. 
All right, I know I don't look like a sprinter, but I was a sprinter. And one of the things they taught us to do was to focus on the finish line, your goal. Not to look around right or left at the people in the stand, at the people next to you or the people in the stands or over here. To look and be focused all the way through the finish line. There's another thing I enjoyed doing was the relay race. And I love the relay race because it's about a team and everybody played a certain part. And, and there's actually strategy when it goes to running a 4 by 100 meter relay. You've got four guys running 100 meters. And there's a strategy, you put different guys with different strengths at different portions of that race. Alright? And a lot of people think they always put the fast guy the last. They don't. A lot of times they'll put him first to get out a good lead. And it just depends on what you're doing. Maybe you're better running the curve than running the straight. Whatever it is, there's a play, part you play and you're all working together for the same goal is to cross the finish line first. That was the goal. Always. And the people on a relay team understand what it means to be part of a team. And everybody's relying. If that first guy comes around and he dogs it, that second guy's got a lot of makeup. If they come and they mess up the baton, they drop a baton, they got even more to make up. Everybody's part is important. And I'm telling you, that's what the New Testament teaches. Everybody on this team plays an important part. And we've got to be committed and focused on the part that we play. So let me ask this question. What part do you play when it comes to being on the team to carry out the mission of God in the world. What's your part? What are your gifts? What are your passions? Whatever they are, be focused on those things. Don't worry about what this guy's doing over here. You, you, you do what God's called you to do. And don't worry about what this person's doing over here. And if somebody starts worrying about what you're doing, don't worry about it. Just be focused on what God has called you to do. And play your part on the team. And keep moving. And Paul, did. He, you don't see this... this this, this movement in Acts where Paul started going like this and he just went like this. Paul, as you see, always through Acts, when he comes on the scene after Peter, he just keeps moving toward the same goal. He's focused. And we're called to be focused. And I know it's hard sometimes. It's difficult to say, hey, when's this going to end? I mean, I'm going through this persecution part in my life. I'm going through the trial part in my life. God, I don't need any more perseverance. Would you back off on the trials? I'm good. I know it's difficult. But God calls us to be focused, just like Paul was. And as Paul wrote, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, I've preached on a few times here, in 1 Corinthians 15, 15, based on the resurrection, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. And I would encourage all of us, by the grace of God, to be steadfast and immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. The thing he's called you to. The part you play on the team. Stay focused. Knowing that your work, your focus, your labor, your toil in the Lord, it's not in vain. You're not crazy. No matter what people say, you're not crazy. Stay focused. Passionately, persistently pursue the mission of God. And play your part. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, just remind us. Uh, of the things that we've been highlighted here in this passage as we passionately, persistently pursue the mission of God. We're to do so in spite of our circumstances. We're, we're to do so by exhorting others in his word. We're to do so by meeting the needs of God's people. We're to do so by being committed to corporate worship on the Lord's day. And we're to do so by being focused on the part that we play in the mission of God. By God's grace, let us passionately and persistently pursue the mission of God. And, and if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I have no idea what this is all about. 
This, this, I don't know if I'm even on the team. Uh, I, I don't really, if, this, if it's going to be tough, I really don't want to be on the team. If you're this morning and you're not part of the team, I mean, you've never understood your sin before a holy God who commands us to be holy. And understand that that commandment is for all people. And he holds us to that standard. Maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you're, you're thinking, well, I can't meet that standard. Good, because you can't. We've all sinned. We've all missed God's mark. We don't give him glory like the word of God tells us to. All of us are in that boat. And it says that the wages are a payment for that sin is death. Eternal separation from God forever. In a real place called hell. That's the situation all mankind finds himself. But God in his mercy. Because of his great love for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his son to pay that penalty. He died. He took on God's just punishment for our sin. So that we wouldn't have to. And the scripture teaches if we would repent and believe, then all that forgiveness that Christ paid for comes to us. And we're forgiven. We're made right with God. We're declared right. We're given the righteousness of God. He makes us his child. So let me urge you, if you've never done that this morning, that you would turn from self-trust and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And be part of the team. Be part of this mission that God has called his family, his church, his body to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for using Paul to be an example of what it looks like to passionately, persistently pursue your mission to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Lord, not only do we see an example, Lord, but your word tells us that you give us the power to do just that to passionately and persistently pursue your mission so that you would be glorified, so we see people from all nations worshiping you, giving glory to you, find their greatest fulfillment in you. Help us now, Lord, as we worship you through song and the Lord's Supper. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.